When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose joining me for The Bigger Picture. Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Uh, Mike, we're going to talk about exams, which is fine for us because we've put exams a long way behind us, but not so fine <laughs> perhaps for the poor people who've been taking them. And the last few years for anybody who's been studying, I think, pretty awful. Yeah. So the reason that we're discussing exam results today is, is it's actually a return to return to normal, as it were. So this is the first time since 2019, doesn't that feel like a long time ago now, that uh, a-level results have been assessed on exams, not by teacher-given grades. And hopefully we're get, we're, we, it will mark a return to normality for a generation of people who have had some of the most formative years of their education uh, disrupted by the pandemic, but also by, let's be honest here, the ineptitudes of the Johnson government in their handling of this as well. Mm-hmm. The... Um, Inevitably, there's always the same degree of commentary around A-level results that come out each year. You know, the record percentages of top grades. We're expecting a slight uh, dip this year uh, down to about uh, roughly just under one in four receiving grades of A-star or A because of the, the difference between assessments. But I think it raises bigger questions really about the policy response that we've had in this as well. And one of the reasons why... It's important I think, to focus on this generation is that there we a whole generation of young people will have had their education disrupted by the pandemic, and thankfully, hopefully, these the, the four hundred twenty-five thousand students who got a university and and college place, according to UCAS, will be able to go on and enjoy the fullness of that experience. But also, we need to think about the how these people are being equipped, and is the government really looking sufficiently at the support that was in place as well. The reason I say this, it's it's one of the many pressing issues that are are on the desk of the outgoing prime minister, who we'll talk about shortly. But education and training opportunities across the board are going to be imperative for ensuring that the economic malaise that we're currently going through, the low productivity particularly plagued our country for over a decade now under this government's watch, does not continue. And at the moment, Simon, we're not seeing many firm policy prescriptions coming out, even from the government over the last three years. Yeah. yeah. Um, so do we want to move on from that? Is there anything else we can um, I we think can it's, just, it's, it's just important to say that we must just to say that we mustn't assume that these grades are going to be a return to normal. And, and I think the benchmark by which we have as, as a society have judged young people needs to be shifted to bear in mind that this generation, I think, going into the education, employment and education mm-hmm. and opportunities beyond 18 will need, I think, more support. And I, I think we shouldn't be afraid of acknowledging yes. that. I, I saw something saying that we're still teaching the same subjects as we were teaching over a century ago. 
the world has changed a lot. Do you think we put enough emphasis on actually preparing um, students, both at school level and at university, for what life is actually like? I don't think we do. And I think there isn't enough emphasis, particularly on learning digital skills. And I, I don't yeah. just refer to this at a, at a, at a, at a school age, but also reskilling the workforce as well. I think we tend to assume that it's up to the employer to do it as well. And one, this is one of the things where I think that if the Labour Party were canny enough, they they would recognise that actually the skills, solving the skills issue in this country is really the, is really the key mm. to unlocking the country's future prosperity as well. So we shouldn't be so much focusing on economic growth. We need to be looking at the percent, not, not just the top grades, we need to be looking at the kinds of subjects people are taking and whether or not they are being equipped to do the jobs that will ensure that we can maintain a competitive economy in an increasingly competitive world. Yes, yes, particularly a world in which many jobs that existed when you and I were much younger and first applying for the world of work are going to get taken over by AI. I mean, Absolutely, it's going to be hard yeah. to keep ahead of the curve, isn't it? And, and if it we're still Absolutely. teaching the way we taught 100 years ago, I don't really think that's necessarily going to help. And I know the uh, Share Radio founder, Gavin Oldham, would also insist that uh, financial education be part of, of education as well. Absolutely. People to cope not just with you know modern technology, but also the complexity of, of finance, which is so important. Anyway, perhaps mm. time for us to move on um, from that. Um, we have seen, of course, fresh inflation uh, figures emerging, establishing new records. What is it? 40 year high for inflation high. in the UK and or yet again ahead of the Bank of England's um, forecasts. Um, that forecast a year ago saying it was going to be completely transitory, I'm afraid it's looking more and more foolish by the moment. So what on earth do we do about it, given that the government seems to be in abeyance at the moment? Well, so this, for my generations of millennials, is particularly concerning because we have never faced inflation of this level before. And of course, that that rate is not the same across every income bracket. Uh, Charities like the Resolution Foundation have been quick to point out that if the Bank of England's conservative estimate, I would say, of 13 percent don't forget that, that that's just their mid-range yes. forecast and, and you 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 know better than i do simon yeah. these forecasts are often wildly uh particularly from the bank are wildly conservative in terms of how they estimate it the resolution foundation has said that the poorest people in society the bottom income deciles would face inflation of nearly 20 percent that's yeah, astonishing that was all always true because the, the inflation figures are uh, derived from a basket of goods, many of which people who don't have much money would never even think of of getting. You strip those out and you have more important things like food, housing costs and stuff like that and travel. And inflation will always look higher than it does for in the official figures. Absolutely. So we're going to see there will, there will be, I think, for the first time in probably 40 years, a real focus in employment relations again on pay rises. So we're seeing increasing amounts of industrial action taking place across the country. For example, uh, bus drivers with Arriva recently got an 11% pay increase as well. Now, if inflation drives, that will soon be eaten into as well. So this presents a number of political challenges for the government. First and foremost will be an impression of keeping things running, keeping things on top of, um, we're talking mainly about essential services. We're talking Mm. a lot about public transport. Lots of professions will be needing to take some sort of pay 
squeeze, I would say. Not everybody can get, you know, you just have to look at the history books here. And of course, you all have experience with the 1970s where the government of the day was constantly caught out by just needing to up pay. Mm. And then you know, we had a Secretary of State for price controls back then as well. And that, that, that price and wage policy throughout, you know, for that, that, throughout that period for about one Conservative Prime Minister and two Labour Prime Ministers did not work. It wasn't until Margaret Thatcher came in and prescribed some rather bitter medicine for the country that inflation was tamed. But clearly those policy prescriptions, I would submit, would no longer work in today's world. It, 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 is a ve- it is a very different world. And part of the problem is, of course, as soon as people think that inflation is going to hang around, then, of course, naturally, they'll want to try and increase their pay. Not everybody can. But that in itself feeds inflation. And so you get into this vicious cycle, and it's really, really hard to solve, particularly as we have lived in an era of low interest rates for so long. Well, some economists were warning it would eventually, chickens would come home to roost. It just makes it that much more difficult to use the traditional remedies. We have to be honest here that the people who are earning a decent salary, and a difference between salary and waged Mm. income here, there will need to be some degree of erosion of their income and living standards. I think that we have to, for those of us that are lucky enough to have enjoyed decent standards of living, in order to keep inflation under control, prevent it and to prevent the, the, the demon of stagflation raising its head, then some form of, of restraint for wages, particularly mm. for those on higher incomes, is going to be needed here as well. Mm. The people now, who one might argue, actually, were the ones who enjoyed the pandemic rather more than the people who were bringing all the goods to them. Absolutely. And I think we have to recognise that actually that the pandemic, for those people who who did, were lucky to be on furlough, I don't include everyone on furlough, but for many people, it's an opportunity to build savings up again as well. So there is a little bit of resilience there, I think, the average thing. But for many people, particularly those people, the overwhelmingly who work in our service-dominated industry, the people who are on minimum wage jobs, who have low savings, who are going to be at the sharp end of this, we will need extremely generous targeted support to ensure that they get through this and i think that has to mean looking at raising first of all the national minimum wage ensuring but also the government doing doing all it can to provide targeted grants in those areas where it's needed and i think actually this is where the labor party's solution of looking at keeping the energy price cap where it is is a good idea because it actually talks about lowering inflation by four points, they claim. And that has been one of the main reasons, whereas the at the moment, Conservatives are letting the price cap go up and up and up, as it were. But we also have to recognise that ultimately, this will take a while to work through. We need to ensure that for most of us, tightening our belts and ensuring that we have a bit of restraint is a good thing. We can't be having... For example, the RMT out for their members who earn forty. Some of them earn between forty and sixty thousand pounds a year. The, 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 the government needs to be focusing on support on the people who overwhelmingly in this country work below the median yes. salary in the service industry jobs, because ultimately they make up the majority of our workforce, and they're the ones we're going to be need need to ensure that they are competitive and able to return to work if we're going to unlock the real productivity yes. puzzle, which has plagued this country for, yes. for a decade now. Absolutely a puzzle nobody has yet um, solved or come anywhere near um, solving. And in addition, of course, we want to be incredibly careful because the Bank of England has been playing catch-up. If they tighten interest rates too much, what they're going to do is bring on recession. Um, inflation is bad enough on its own, but inflation and a recession together not going to be much fun. 
I mean, we're looking at least at five quarters of economic contraction already, according to the bank's last forecast. The stagflation, I think, is going to be with us for a while now. Uh, they can't raise interest rates too soon. And I do feel for a lot of people, I was speaking to a colleague the other day, and she was you know, looking at her savings account interest rate and moaning that the um, the rate was, was well below inflation. And I think also we have to recognize too that a lot of people have taken on, we must avoid people turning, being forced to turn to borrowing, mm-hmm. particularly the poorest end of society, because ultimately the last thing we need is, is a consumer debt bubble that would add to problems as well, because we've been around long enough to know that I think every Every form of economics, and if you look at our history, every form of, whether it be you know, the gold standard, whether it be the corn laws, whether it be looking to Thatcherism or the post-war mm-hmm. consensus, has a shelf life. And I think we have to be honest that since 2008, we, it has been obvious that the comparatively, uh, the UK has embraced a comparatively liberal interpretation of capitalism. I think we need to lean back more towards a status model. And this doesn't mean looking at nationalization it doesn't mean a state-controlled economy what it does mean i think is looking at where there have been market failures in industries in privatization mm. and we, we we can talk we can point to these quite easily the railways water energy companies particularly the water industry as well is is mm. staggeringly inept as, a, as a, it's just basically a series of monopolies at the moment and looking at how the state can encourage either encourage those markets to work better or where it is absolutely essential, doing as Gordon Brown suggested, taking these companies into public ownership and ensuring that they are equipped and meeting the needs of the country. Because ultimately, these resources have had a good length of time in the private sector. They clearly are no longer delivering for their customers. And ultimately, it's the government's job to ensure that these utilities, these services work for the people that use them. Mike, time for us then just to take a breather and we will change topic. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rays. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian. Uh, Mike, we've managed to get this far without really discussing the Tory leadership contest, which grinds on and on. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only one thinking that it really just does seem too long. Partic- I mean, normally the summer, it's a relatively quiet time and nothing much is going on, but you do feel we are in the midst of quite a significant crisis and you worry that there's a sort of hole where government normally is. Well, I think we have to be, to be honest, that the, the two contenders for the Conservative leadership election have, you know, they have to follow the process that's set out for them yeah. here as well. You know, I, 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 what I wouldn't do at this point in time is blame either Liz Truss, there'll be plenty of time to blame Liz Truss if she gets into office, or Rishi Sunak for the lack of ineptitude, uh, for, the, for the lack of an adept response to the evolving situations that we're seeing, whether it be the strikes, whether it be the price increases. What we have to acknowledge, though, is that the Tory leadership race appears to have reached a at this point in time. A YouGov poll for Sky News showed that around just over half of Conservative members have voted. That's roughly seventy-five thousand, maybe mm. ninety thousand people at most, predominantly in Southern England, predominantly older, predominantly white. 
a, a traditional Tory base, as it, as it were. What is interesting is that there have been some calls for Rishi Sunak to accept that Liz Truss's lead in this contest is unassailable and that he should just withdraw. In actual fact, I think that he's wise to continue. It, it is actually, and I'll give him credit here, I think actually it is refreshing to see actually he has embraced this opportunity. There's, there's, you know, he's attempt- she, she is avoiding hustings. She has ducked BBC interviews with um, with Nick Robinson, another one with Andrew Neil. Rishi Sunak is taking all these opportunities to be out there and to campaign. Of course, as the underdog, he has very little to lose in comparison. I strongly mm. suspect that he won't be offered a cabinet position in the trust government. I think he'll probably end up on the back benches again. He's certainly not seen as trustworthy by the Conservative membership. But again, I think he he recognised that himself when he, in his resignation letter from, from the cabinet, he said, this may be the last job in government I hold. And he was probably right about mm. that. I think he will probably, you know, sink off. But I suspect that the Conservatives will whilst I don't believe he is anywhere close to a silver bullet for this contest, the fact that Liz Truss is still clinging to her assertion, this bizarre assertion that her, the idea is that in the first couple of weeks of a trust premiership, she would have an emergency budget where tax cuts would be put forward. Every single economist out there, even the ones that support or admit this would, this would push either the cost of borrowing up in interest rates, that's, that's the most generous assessment from Patrick Mimford, most of the others agree that it would be some form of inflation. And if we if we look at, for example, when Rishi Sunak was chancellor, he tried cutting fuel duty by 5p, prices just went up correspondingly. So this, there isn't a simple lever for the government to, to, mm. to, to knock here to address the issue of inflation. It, yeah. It would be a shame if Sunak's not part of the government. You would like to think, you know, after having a cabinet that wasn't necessarily full of the most impressive people imaginable, it would be nice to think that there was a role for for anybody who was really good. I mean, Sunak is supposed to be a master of detail, isn't he? Which, which he's, ministers he's, need. He's a master of presentation, I would say. And I think he's, I don't, I, the problem with Rishi Sunak is that he is, I think for all intents and purposes, in politics for the right reasons, I think. And so is this trust. I believe. I believe they both have, unlike Boris Johnson, I believe they actually both want the best for the country. You know, mm. I think they both have, have served, um, in well, trust has been in every conservative government since 2012. Rishi Sunak has served alongside Johnson. I think also that uh, they're they're not the moral vacuums that I view Boris Johnson to be. In all honesty, they don't want power for power's sake. But equally, they're both trapped by, in the words of Steve Richards, they're both trapped by the history of the Conservative Party. Neither can really see past Margaret Thatcher, and it would take a very particularly courageous conservative politician to, I mean, I, I, am, I am always drawn to politicians who are prepared to tell the public difficult truths. It's, it's probably the most attractive quality. I think in, in the leader is the ability to, to get, to tell the public something that they don't want to hear. And it does, it's not a way to win elections. It's a, but equally, I think it's a key tenant of leadership and, that there may be a point in which I think maybe I'd be wrong about this, that the Conservative Party would regret turning away from Rishi Sunak, although he is equally promising some fanciful tax cuts now, like knocking 5% off VAT, he has been more consistent, but it's always degrees. There's never going to be a perfect candidate for Prime Minister. And out of the two of them, I think Sunak would be the better bet for the Conservatives in the short term. I, I don't think either of them have are really going to be equipped to deal with what's coming. 
in terms of the next year or so. I mean, we are less than now two years away from a general election. We're 20 months out from one, probably. Looking at spring 2024 here, May 2024. The most worrying thing, I think, is that they will... The Conservative Parliamentary Party is going to be incredibly divided to this. But out of the, you know, they both have equal numbers of MPs backing them. There are lots of MPs switching sides now. And there are some quite acrimonious discussions on social media now. In many ways, the Conservative Party needs a break from power. It's been in power now. It will have been in power by the time next election for 14 years. That's an yeah. incredibly long period of time. I'm optimistic. The more this goes on, the more I'm optimistic that Labour can make gains and hopefully it would put itself in a position where it could actually give the Tories its first real challenge since 2017. And again, fair credit to Jeremy Corbyn. That was a, a remarkable election result. But this isn't a party political point, Simon. It's the fact that if this leadership election shows us one thing, it's that the Tories are tired, they're out of ideas. And to give Margaret Thatcher her due, when she was opposition leader, she went away and did some very creative thinking about, with Keith Joseph, with the IEA, about what she wanted to do in government. And that led the Tories into their longest period in office in modern history. Mm-hmm. That's what they need to do now. They need to go away and have a real think about doing things differently. And at the moment, neither leadership contenders nor Boris Johnson is showing any sign of that. You talked earlier about having an admiration for politicians who tell the truth as it is to the public, even though it may not be politically astute to do so. Do we have many of those politicians I think it strikes me that a generation ago, we, we had many of these sort of big beasts who just said it as they saw it. But maybe it's just looking at the past through rose-tinted spectacles. I mean, the, the, the best example, I think, is probably Ken Clark from, yeah. from the politicians that I grew up with. Blair was another one, I think, actually, who wasn't afraid occasionally to stand up and, and call things out. Every politician will always, you know, to some degree, need to... to spin things. That, that is, you know, we all do it in life. You know, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. But it frustrates me that there are people outside of government. I listen, I'm a big fan of um, Alistair Campbell of Rory Stewart's podcast, but I can't help get frustrated every time they talk about political reform. I'm thinking you both at one point either sat in a cabinet or were the right-hand person of a very influential prime minister, and neither of you did the things that you're talking about. Now, obviously, Campbell is a bit different because the Blair government, I think, did do a lot to reform the country in its first term. It did take some difficult decisions, like the Freedom of Information Act, for example, although Blair views it now as his sort of greatest thing, actually yeah. has done a lot to open up and restore trust in our life. And it's, you know, anyone trying to take that away from us now would would be unwise to do so. They have the Electoral Commission, a lot. But equally, there's all this talk about needing new thinking. Now, that this isn't this whether this should come from the left or the right, it doesn't in that sense matter. But we had a phase about five years ago. 2017 particularly, where we actually had, the, for the first time, there was real fresh thinking at the top of politics. And by this, I mean Nick Timothy and Theresa May's more statist Tory manifesto and Jeremy Corbyn's quite inspired 2017 manifesto too, which blended the sort of best elements of sort of that kind of socialism with a sort of more modern slant. Both the manifestos actually were in themselves very, very interesting documents to read mm. in terms of the, the visions of the country. And then we reverted back to sort of a more labourer sort of tacking more back now to sort of a soft state approach. And actually, I, I would think actually we'd probably need a rerun of that argument about whether or not it's it's beneficial to basically the role of the government needs to be the central argument for all policy decisions going forward here. Because the pandemic has shown us 
the government is capable of doing some amazing things when it sets its mind to it. But equally, there are huge problems associated with that as well in terms of you know, the levels of debt that are taken on in terms of the fiscal decisions and also waste of public money as well. But the, the, the best decision, the big decision now that both parties should be talking about is how they would use the state. Would they go down a more libertarian route, stick to the Thatcher idea of a smaller state, or would they do, which is probably the smarter route, and look at where state interventions can be used tactically and strategically to improve people's lives. And if we look at the real moments of transformation, when you and I did our, our series of um, how did we get here, which is available on Share Radio's podcast, mm. we, we talked about the great moments of state intervention there, you know, the, the new liberals, the post-war consensus, um, the Blair government's NHS increases as well. And, and the, the stories embrace that. And if we look at the times when a country's really benefited from that and been transformed, it has been through targeted state intervention. And that, I think, has to be the discussion at the next election between the Tories and Labour. Let's uh, end by uh, discussing Boris Johnson. Um, I mean, apart from sort of seeing pictures of his uh, wedding celebrations, it doesn't seem to be much in evidence. And yet surely anybody who's, you know, handed notice of their job doesn't necessarily mean they can just disappear. Uh, though, yeah. for all I know, maybe him not being around is actually better than him being around. But, you know, we're in a time of crisis. You would like to think the Prime Minister was at least doing something. So first of all, I want to wish the Prime Minister and his wife, um, uh, you know, glad they've had a chance to celebrate their nuptials and they look like they were having fun at the party. Uh, this isn't about anyone being a sports ball. Boris Johnson is perfectly entitled to have a holiday, to you know, enjoy time off. And Keith Starmer actually, I think, robustly defended his right to have a holiday, his Keith Starmer's right to have a holiday, but politicians need breaks. We can't have our leaders being tired and exhausted. Equally, uh, it, there is an increasing impression among many people that the phrase I keep, a lot of people keep saying to me, the country is going to the dogs. Now, obviously, that's an exaggeration. You know, we're still a rich and prosperous nation, but there are there are big issues there. There were flash floods in London yesterday. We're facing unprecedented cost of living. And the Prime Minister has made a decision, which I, I thought at the time was deeply, deeply unwise, for the um, for the um, that no new decisions would be taken until the Tory leadership election. And he agreed a timetable with Sir Graham Brady that eventually they could have done a quick contest. They could have gone in over in a few weeks. They chose to drag it out. And Johnson's side of that was the fact that he said, I won't tie the hands of my successor. Now, that sounds like a mature decision, but actually what it means is he's abdicating responsibility. He's, he's insisting he doesn't have to. And we all know with Boris Johnson, the reason he's done this isn't because he wants to be considerate and to abide by the Constitution. He just doesn't want to do anything. He is, he's never been concerned with action. He just, he's, he's, he's effectively about to embark on what Ted Heath effectively famously had was one large sulk. In fact, he's spending most of time yes. thinking about plotting a political comeback, apparently. And if Boris Johnson had shown in the last few weeks that he was prepared to grasp the nettle and deal, make make difficult decisions, because the one thing about leaders who are on the way out, and Theresa May showed this in in twenty twenty in twenty nineteen, she legislated the net zero, for example, which was a you know an ambitious aim. You know, and she did try to do the domestic violence bill as another one. She was quite content to try and use her power right up until the last moment. As Prime Minister Boris Johnson says no interest in that, and if the Tories are ever tempted to go back to Boris Johnson as their comfort blanket candidate again, they should remember these last few months, these last few weeks, 
someone compared him to Nero fiddling while the country burned. It's not quite that bad. But you have a man here who's shown he is utterly uninterested in governing. He just wants the power and the status. And if for the Conservative Party, that claims to be the party of government in this country, it would be a profound mistake for them to turn back to Boris Johnson because of these last few weeks of showing exactly what he is. Lazy, inept and entirely self-centred son. Not pulling any punches there, Mike. Thank you very much indeed, Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Mike will be back talking to me again. I'm sticking the boot in in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.